Welcome to the Youth Ministry in Motion Podcast. The number one youth ministry podcast on the planet. The show that keeps you motivated and your youth ministry moving forward. Now, here's your host, author, speaker, and trainer, Paul Turner. Hey, what's going on there, youth workers? So glad to be with you on the podcast today. And if you're a brand new listener, thanks for joining. Uh, No matter what you're doing, whether you're going for a run or sitting in your office or maybe you're out shopping, uh, looking at all the new Christmas stuff that's on the shelves already, along with Halloween, Thanksgiving, and uh, any other holidays that may be mixed in there. And so uh, welcome in, though. Welcome. Thank you for being a part of the podcast today. And um, just a couple of updates on uh, who's listening to this podcast. First of all, uh, Eagle River. I want to say Eagle River. Thanks for listening. I'm going to say that's at least when it comes up when I search, uh, possibly Eagle River, Wisconsin. So if you're Wisconsin, welcome. Thanks for listening. San Francisco on the board and Seattle. Love that you guys are listening. Thank you for being a part of the program today. And then uh, a few countries uh, here, new countries I've seen, uh, the Netherlands, welcoming to you, uh, Netherlands and India. So uh, thank you for being a part of the program today. Uh, We'll let you know that today we're going to be talking about apologetics for adolescents. And uh, we have a great guest today in Trevor Hamaker. He's going to be uh, joining us and talking about all the good stuff about apologetics, not just apologetics for students, but apologetics for you, for you, the local youth worker, uh, to get it into your heart uh, about your journey and speaking on the things that you believe and going deep within yourself uh, so that you can have the confidence to be able to share with your young people as well. Uh, Before we jump into the conversation, I'll let you know that I do have some open seats in the Ministry Minded Coaching Group. If you're interested in that, I'll put a link in the description below. It will definitely build your confidence and give you the tools you need to build a successful youth ministry. Today, I'm joined by my friend, Trevor Hamaker. He is the author of uh, many books, and he blogs over at betteryouthministry.com. So welcome in, Trevor Hamaker. Thanks, Paul. Thanks for having me. It's an honor to be on with you, buddy. Hey, listen, uh, we have had already the warm-up, the 30-minute warm-up discussion, got our brains cooking, we got the juices flowing, and we're going to be talking about uh, apologetics for adolescents. And uh, uh, I heard that you wrote a book about that. So we're going to talk about that. But tell the folks uh, here uh, a little bit about yourself and uh, a little bit about your youth ministry origin story. Yes, absolutely. So again, my name is Trevor Hamaker, and I grew up in Raleigh, North Carolina, and I did not come from a religious family, a religious household growing up. We went bowling on Sunday mornings in the winter, and my dad would take us to the baseball field to hit baseballs. in kind of the spring and summer. And so religion was kind of nowhere on our radar. I got involved with a non-denominational ministry group called Young Life. And through their kind of constant, consistent presence in my life and on our campus, they, they earned the right to be heard. They built trust, shared the gospel with me uh, at a fall retreat. And, and as, as it was as shocking to me as anybody else who knew me, I believed it. And Jesus radically changed my life got involved uh, in student ministry um, and spent, uh, gosh, the better portion of my adult life working directly as a student pastor um, in different church contexts. I live just south of Atlanta now, 
And, um, and now I spend most of my time, I teach as an adjunct professor, different ministry classes, spiritual formation classes, Bible classes, theology classes, all that good stuff. Um, and I also coach youth pastors as, as well. So for me, youth ministry kind of, st- it wasn't ever like a career option. It was just something where Jesus got a hold of me and my heart. And it just seemed like the natural outflow of that to say, who else, who, who can I invite into this relationship to join me and Jesus as we go forward? Wow. Well, let me tell you something. You may be the smartest person I've ever had on the podcast. It's no insult to anybody else. I'm just saying intellectually, you, you may be, based on all that you've just said, the smartest person I've had on the podcast. So, well, makes- let me let me tell you. Let me tell you. And I tell I tell this to everybody. Look, <laughs> my junior year of high school, I was going. I was I, I was going to drop out. I was failing two classes. I was academically ineligible to play baseball. I thought there is no reason for me to be at school if I can't play ball, and it doesn't really matter. So I was going to drop out. My baseball coach got me on academic probation with the county, and I was able to stick around as long as I showed some improvement. Well, that fall, I stuck around. That fall, I became a Christian, and what Jesus brought into my life, uh, he didn't give me a new brain, but honestly, he gave me a new purpose and a focus to, I mean, when, when in Colossians 3, where it says, do everything as if you're doing it for Jesus, like, I took that into the weight room, I took that onto the baseball field, I took that into my classes, and the reason why I've kept at academics for so long is, honestly, I have my own issues, I have my own questions, my own doubts that I always try to sort through, And what I was telling my son's in seventh grade, and I told him just this weekend, it's not hard to raise questions. Anybody can raise questions. But what it's what's difficult and what's time consuming is going through the process of seeking some answers. And honestly, my academic journey or my educational journey has been very personal to me um, because it's been on a quest to sort out some of my own issues or doubts or questions when it comes to uh, religion in general and Christianity in particular. Well, and uh, uh, you know, I love the fact that uh, you bring up your education, you bring up those things because uh, that's what we're going to be talking about today. We're going to talk about apologetics uh, for adolescents. Uh, you're a smart guy um, and you can uh, um, describe, you can articulate uh, you can do all those things that all the stuff that you learned. And I know that there's guys that are listening or watching here on YouTube and say, listen, I'm a, I went to a seminary. I went to all the things and they have all this information. And the question is, how do we get all that information into a middle school boy or a high school girl? And, but before we even get into that, let's talk about why it's important. Apologize. I mean, isn't what that's what Google's for. I mean, can we not just Google answers to our faith? Isn't that just the, the, the normal thing to do versus that? So tell me why apologetics is important in the first place, especially, I mean, for everybody, but why should it be important for teenagers? So apologetics is important. First off, if you back up, you know, what is apologetics? Mm-hmm. How I like to describe it is simply giving reasons for why you think or do what you do. Yes. Um, if I if I was to ask what's your favorite quick serve or fast food restaurant, and you might say uh, Chick Fil A, Taco Bell, whatever you might answer, and then if I say, hey, tell me why, like why is that your favorite? And you it it doesn't take much effort. You can say because I like the sauce or I like the the menu or I think that the people are friendly or clean or nice or whatever. Like 
all that's apologetics. Honestly, it's not even a religious word. It's just sure. simply, it's a term that means it's your reason for believing or behaving the way that you do. So uh, in terms of a re- religious setting, apologetics is about commending the faith to other people, or it's about defending the faith from potential attacks from naysayers or, or others. Well, historically, as long as Christianity has had uh, influence in the, in the popular culture, it was always thought that apologetics was something that you leverage toward outsiders, kind of evangelistically. Like, this is how we got to convince people that they're wrong and we're right and perhaps even draw them in. But I'm, I'm thinking, I came across a book called A Secular Age by a philosopher named Charles Taylor, and this shifted things for me. Um, uh, you know, it's, it's a term that's become popular through some of Andrew Root's books, mm-hmm. as far as a pastor yep. in a secular age, uh, faith formation in a secular age. The subtitle for my book is how to believe in a secular age. Like this term to me really opened my eyes to where we're living right now. And the, the concept is that faith is now more difficult than unbelief. So believing in God has become more difficult than not believing in God. And that's a massive shift that has taken place where throughout centuries and centuries of human existence, belief in God was assumed or taken for granted. Even if you read Genesis 1, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The Bible doesn't even try to make a case for where God came from, um, you know, uh, or anything. The Bible simply assumes God's existence. And that's been the norm throughout eons of human history. But now in a secular age, you have to actually contend for the existence of God. And it's actually harder to maintain belief in God than it is to just wash your hands of it all and say, there's probably no God there. So doubt is what I find to be the distinctive feature of our time. As I'm working with students, high school students, middle school students, college students, everybody's plagued with doubt because of a lot of information overload, uh, a proliferation of choices. We have access to, with Google, I mean, practically every answer that you could possibly uh, want to find, at least at the, at the head level. Yeah. Um, and so as I think about it, tracing the shift, modernity, which was kind of the modern period, which gave us different technological advances and connectivity and so forth, modernity gave way to plurality or pluralism. So you could say modernism uh, created the space for pluralism to open up. And pluralism is simply uh, an acknowledgement that there's more than one. So uh, it's not that Muslims live across the world. They live next door. They live right. in your neighborhood. Exactly. Uh, it could be that your daughter, uh, you know, goes to college and, and comes home with, uh, with a Hindu or Buddhist boyfriend or, you know, or your son goes away and comes home with a, uh, a new age uh, girlfriend. Like pluralism is there. And now because of our proximity and our closeness, it opens the way to relativity, which says, oh, hold up. I know my neighbor and they're not, and she's a nice lady or she, he, they're a nice couple. They've got a nice family. Like who am I to say? that they're wrong somehow or off base. So modernity opened the way to plurality, which opened the way to relativity. And that's where we find ourselves. Well, the person who suffers most in our current situation is is the Christian student who now has no clue what to think about God or faith or truth or Jesus in the middle of all of that. So the shift that I think has to get made is rather than thinking about apologetics as being something we leverage and deploy on outsiders, we now have to become the target of our best apologetic uh, arguments. 
Well, you're right. And apologetics too, from the standpoint of a youth pastor teaching it to their students, isn't even something they need it now, but they're even going to need it more later. It's not even because the, if they're, if the, if kids in your youth group are cloistered off to some degree, yeah, they're going to have some friends that are Muslim, depending where you live, right? They're going to have some friends that are Muslim, they're going to be some friends that are Jewish, uh, some friends that are atheists, uh, whatever that may be. But the challenge is going to be for later on, when, like you said, when they go to college, when they go to a workplace, uh, when they, uh, all of those things that are impacting them, those apologetics, those um, uh, premises and principles of contending for the faith come into play. So it's not something we can just put off and say, well, the middle schooler doesn't need to learn that right now. The middle schooler does need to learn it right now, but it may not become practical until a certain point in their journey. I'll tell you, my son's in seventh grade right now. My daughter's in sixth grade right now. They have friends who aren't Christian and who aren't ashamed about it. You know, my son has, has a buddy who, who's a self-proclaimed atheist. I don't think he, that, that boy has thought through the options, but, uh, but that's, what he, that's where he's at. He's got another pal who's a Jewish, who's a Jewish kid. Um, so we, again, this is where modernity gave way to plurality. And if you're not careful, plurality is fine as long as you don't slip into relativity because plurality is just simply options on the table. Right. Um, and that's cool. So, and this is a seventh grader, uh, you know, in a normal school in South of Atlanta, honestly. Yeah. So right. my son is asking me all of these questions as a seventh grader. Why, you know, why should we trust the Bible? Uh, why do we think Jesus rose from the dead? All this kind of stuff. And whereas other people don't. So I, I'm, so I am a practitioner of this topic as well as a dad right. and as a pastor sure. trying to say, okay, uh, what's necessary and how deep is too deep and, uh, and all that. I, I tend to probably go, oh, I, I probably tend to overshare with my son and my daughter and my wife continues to say, pull back a little bit, pull back a little bit. So it's a tension though. It's a tension because what I don't want them to think is Christianity doesn't have responses to these issues or these questions. Christianity has been around for over 2000 years and we aren't the first people to encounter people of other persuasions or other faiths or, or whatever. Right, and there's been right. things that make Christianity distinctive and uh, uh, thoughtful, well-intentioned, faithful Christian people have responded to situations that are similar to ours for, for, for 2000 years. We're just now re, maybe rediscovering it because we are entering a post-Christian era where we've kind of uh, been able to take a lot of this for granted in Christendom. Well, yeah, no, no question. So then break that down for me then, because you, you're talking about your middle schoolers, right? And what apologetics look for middle schoolers as compared to what it looks like to high schoolers, right? Yes. Um, because, and we talk about the intellect, right? But teenagers are also feelers, right? Hormonal, experiential, right? All of that. So then what does apologetics look if, if those that are watching, those that are listening to us saying, okay, what path then do I take if I have either high school and middle school in the same group or possibly separate? Is some, is, in other words, is apologetics something you teach separately, possibly in a Sunday school, a small group? Is that a topic for a main meeting with everybody there? How does that break down for the age groups? So I think it's, I think it's a universal topic that can be shared with you if you have middle school and high school together, or I, I even think that you can teach very similar information um, to, to, to both groups if they meet separately. 
as far as the content of that for for middle schoolers so in full disclosure i just gave my son the student version student edition of the case for christ because i think that evidential apologetics which is kind of looking at uh things that things that have things that have happened in the natural world um things that we can kind of point to evidence about that that's you know middle schoolers are very tactile and yeah. so that gets a lot of traction with them uh, and so I think I was telling you that uh, maybe the first apologetics book that I read, I didn't know what apologetics was, but when I became a Christian, I instinctively knew, and granted, I was a senior in high school, but I instinctively knew that I needed to bolster my trust in Christ, okay? And right. I needed to do that because for me, I was giving up a life. Like for me, I didn't grow up in church, so I was giving up the life that I had carved out for myself, and I, and I was saying, I'm not going to give all that up for something that it's not believable or true. So uh, jo uh, Josh McDowell, More Than a Carpenter, was the very first book that I ever read on apologetics. And I'll tell you, man, I thought case closed. Like it is done. I think I got a ready defense up here on the, my shelf, right? And More Than a Carpenter. There it is. The very first apologetics book I ever, uh, I ever got hold of. I keep it as a souvenir. There you um, go. But some of the arguments that he puts forward in there have – they don't carry as much weight with me today as they did then. Um, for example, he says, nobody can ever doubt your personal testimony, the, 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 the work that Jesus has done in your life. Right. Well, that sounds great. And, and honestly, I was like, case closed. You can't argue with that. Jesus changed me. And you don't believe all this other stuff. Look at my life. Well, that's true to an extent. But, uh, but, but anybody from any faith who's experienced any transformation can make that same exact argument. Right. It's so, subjective. It's subjective. very subjective. It's right. Very subjective. And that's always been the knock, I think, on evidential type apologetics is, okay, so we have 5,000 manuscripts of the New Testament. So? It doesn't mean that it's true. <laughs> Right? right. It doesn't mean that it's true. It just means we have a lot of manuscripts. Lot. That's right. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. But again, where I was at in the process is the same is the same place I'm assuming my son is based on questions he's asking is, uh, you know, why, why do we think that we can trust the stories about Jesus? Well, in that case, how many manuscripts we've found and their level of agreement based on where they've been found throughout the world can at least point us in a direction and say, what we have in our gospels is a reasonably or generally reliable portrayal of, uh, of a historical figure named Jesus. Now, whether you want to trust in that with your life and bank eternity on that, that's a different kind of conversation um, that requires a little bit different, uh, different approach. But just in terms of sheer believability, uh, I think those are, those are helpful places to begin. And another thing is, it might depend on um, who's, in, who's in the group. You know, uh, are they, are they more, so my son, I'm, I, I'm a Christian, uh, we're a Christian family. And so he's, he's far more aware of Christian claims than, uh, than maybe somebody who, I mean, he already knows more about the Bible than I ever knew, uh, you know, as a, as even a high schooler. So he's, he, so his question is a little bit different. He knows about the stories, but his question is, how can I, tr how can I trust that the stories are accurate? That's a different question than somebody who assumes that God isn't there anyway. Right. You know, um, so what I begin from the place of, of saying, no matter what, I am foolish if I tell a student or an adult or anybody, even a friend of mine down the road who doesn't believe any of this, if I say, well, just believe. 
just believe. Like, what do you have to lose? Just believe. Because at the end of the day, no person can believe what they believe is unbelievable. Okay. In other words, if I believe something is not true, it is impossible for me to believe it. If right. I think something is illogical or impossible, I cannot believe it. So uh, that's why to me, when, when a kid uh, or a young person or a college student or, or, or somebody in our adult small group comes in and says, hey, I'm wrestling with this. I got questions about that. The worst thing we can do is, is just kind of dismiss those questions or tell them you just need more faith. Right, because right. Faith, faith is bolstered by knowledge. Um, and, and so, you know, some of the ways that I think about it, uh, you know, there are different people who might say first Corinthians eight, where knowledge puffs up, you know, love builds up. And, and that's cool. Like that, that addresses a very particular issue. Like if you are an educated, smart person, you really have to be aware that you're not, you know, smushing other people down and that you're right. really being intentional. Uh, however, in Romans 10, Paul says that, 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 uh, that the Jewish people are kind of off track, not because they, they don't have zeal, like, dude, their heart is in it, but they have zeal without knowledge. Right. And so there's always this two sides of the same, of the same coin to me, where it's like, you, there's love and there's knowledge, and the head is the gateway to the heart. So for me, and that's been my own personal story, and maybe somebody else might have a different one, but right. when I felt like my faith was on the ropes, um, you know, when I felt like life jumped up and punched me and I was on and I was and I was going down, man, uh, that happens for students when they encounter uh, uh, intellectual, social or experiential challenges. When something like that comes up and pops them, they've got to have something true and sturdy yeah. uh, and believable that they can hold on to or they're going to bounce. They're going to be out. Right. And that's both from two. To, to, and I think you made, made such a great point there because there, there is an intellectual process that you have to go through, right? You have to go through and say, is this believable? Is this something I can, okay, I see the process, the wheels are turning. And I think about then, I think about the, the, uh, the heart and talking about, you know, the two men that walk with Jesus after the resurrection, right? And he says, do you not know what's going on? They're like treating Jesus as if he's a stranger in town. And they begin to share with them all that was occurring in that town. And then Jesus leaves them. And then suddenly he just disappears while they're having a meal. And they say, didn't our hearts burn within us while he spoke, right? So they had information of what was happening, but then they also had the passion with them that said, hey, that was, that was a thing. That was Jesus. Well, that's right. So how I phrase it is that you, you can have knowledge without love, but you can't have love without knowledge. And I like to think about it in terms of my relationship with my wife. When I, very, when I met her for the very first time, I didn't love her, right? It was not like, I, I mean, maybe you could say love at first sight or whatever. I think that's attraction, sure, sure. right? But it's not love. That's a poor definition of love. But anyway, I didn't love her because I didn't know her. So through the dating or courting process, whatever your audience wants to call it, right. uh, what happened is, is exactly, I learned that I could trust her. And as my, tr as my, so my knowledge in her led to, or my knowledge of her built my trust in her, which eventually culminated in our marriage, which is the highest form of commitment to her. Yeah. So for me, it's, and it's all based on that bedrock of my knowledge of her. Knowledge led to trust, which led to commitment. And what I see is when the commitment to God is faltering, 
then the, the, possibly the trust is faltering, which means that the knowledge is faltering. If you knew who God was rightly, yeah. if you knew his, his character, his goodness, his will for you, for your best, there's, you would follow him with everything you had. So there's got to be a breakdown somewhere in that process that, that, uh, that reacquainting yourself with precisely who God is and what God's about will help. That's my right. assumption. Right, right, right. Uh, but uh, and I, uh, what you're talking about as far as, the, as far as general principles, why apologetics is so important because of that knowledge that leads to trust, that leads to commitment. There has to be something believable, right? There has to be something intellectually believable that's behind all the preaching. Why am I sharing this message with you? Why is this important? And then there's what you said, the foundational, the, the, the rock solid stuff that says, well, there's not just, I'm not just asking you to commit your heart, right? Love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your mind, with all your soul, with all your strength, right? It's a, it's a package deal. It's not just a heart thing, but it's a mind thing as well. And so putting students in your youth ministry, in position. And, and there's some youth workers that are listening. They're like, they're afraid to teach it maybe. Or they're, you know, if we, pu- if we start pulling on threads, if we start, pu- I don't have all the answers there, Trevor. I don't, if I start pulling on threads here, wh- what's going to happen? This whole thing's going to come apart for me, right? It's, a, it's a, the slippery slope. If I start talking about it, then my kids are going to have more questions that I'm not, I don't feel even equipped to teach something like apologetics. Yeah, no, that's a, that's a real fear. Um, and for that, I would say that, I mean, I've, I've written a book about apologetics. I read books about apologetics. Like this is not an optional part of the ministry program to me. Sure. Uh, in, in the relativistic culture that we're in, like this is part and parcel of what it means to work with students. Like you've got to be understanding, um, you know, what other religions think when they think about God. You've got to be thinking through prob- the problem of evil. Um, you know, you've got to be thinking through why isn't God more obvious? You've got to be thinking through all of these different issues because that's what it means to work with students. Like I, if it was just as like if working with students was just as simple as, you know, throw, throw a dot, throw a, put up a Gaga pit, you know, which I'm a big fan of, right? My son yes, loves Gaga. Absolutely. And, right. And I'm a, I, dude, I, if you don't have a Gaga pit, you should get one. But, yes. you, but, but while it's being built, you know, or maybe after you've built it during the, you know, as you're spending your days building the Gaga pit, you need to spend some nights doing a little less Netflix and a little bit more reading, um, you know, or watching some lectures. I mean, dude, the dissemination of information through YouTube, through Udemy, through online courses, through apps, through YouTube, through like, there is no reason why you can't be at least uh, conversant in some of these topics. Right. it's to me, it's just no excuse. Like if you, you aren't willing, like, dude, even my hair, I got a haircut, uh, two days <laughs> ago. Yeah. Right. You yeah. know, Hey, the lady who cuts my hair is even required to, to be a part of continuing education to cut hair. Uh, yeah. when I was teaching, when I was teaching in a, in a, in a school, teachers are required to be part of continuing education. Most fields require continuing education. Yeah. If you're a youth pastor, th- to me, it's built in. This is part of what you got going on. This is the current issue that we got to be dealing with. You got to build this into your continuing education and maybe do a little less fantasy football, a little less Netflix, a little bit, a little bit less water cooler talk. You know, uh, you know, when you get around your, your other staff members or whatever, you got to close the door and, and, and learn some things. Absolutely. And by the way, just for a quick plug, uh, I, I do have a video on the channel here uh, on my YouTube channel that how to build a Gaga pit for less than $200 link in the description. So yes. it's so, so important. It is. Listen, you've got to have 
that fun element, but you also got to be training yourself. That has to be part of the process. And it doesn't have to be daunting. It doesn't have to be overwhelming. And I think that's what part of youth workers feel like that the process is overwhelming. And what would you say? How would you, I mean, yes, then you say, look, stop Netflix. Okay. Stop doing that. So then what's then the process then? How does a youth worker then say, okay, uh, uh, this is what I need. How do I get there? You break it down. You break it down. What do they uh, they say? To eat an elephant, you take it one bite at a time. Correct. And I'm telling you, I did this myself. I'm not telling anybody to do something that I haven't tried to do or done. I've taken uh, near, I guess, a little over 200 high school kids through the content that I created only because I listened to where they were at. So I was working at a Christian school and the, the banner on the wall said like, we prepare Christian students to impact the world for Jesus Christ. So one day I got a little crazy and I said, hey students, uh, who feels like that's happening for you? And like nobody raised their hand. And that was, tell, that was telling to me, cause you got, you know, you got parents spending thousands of dollars uh, you know, investing in this Christian education for their kids, and they're one year out from going to college, and they're like, I don't think I could impact anybody for Jesus. <laughs> and, and and these are these are church kids too. Yeah, so that sure. Means they, they, this means they've also been part of a student ministry where the church has invested, let's say, hundreds, if not thousands, of hours in their Christian formation. And this is what we've got. Are you kidding me? Uh, not only that, but they had read some Ravi Zacharias books. They had read some Tim Keller books. They had read this and that along the way. Uh, and and, and, and I was really struck, right? Like, what in the world? Like, what's going on? So I talked to them about where's that gap? And they said it was, now they didn't use that word, but it was apologetics. They felt ill-prepared to have a conversation with anybody about faith. They didn't feel, um, they, they had their, they, they felt like they were Christians, but they didn't even know why. And that's scary because if you don't know why you're a Christian, you probably won't be one for much longer. That's you know, true. that's, <laughs> like, so that's true. not hard to figure out. Yeah. So I said, okay, here I am. I'm a teacher. I, it's my job. I got to teach these guys something. How, like, where's the missing link? And it, and it occurred to me that they, again, they had read some Robbie stuff. They had read some Keller stuff. They had read some Sean McDowell stuff or seen a video here or there or whatever. Right. Uh, watched a couple of Bible project, you know, videos, but nobody had built the case for Christ, let's say, or the case for, faith in a in a ground up manner like from the ground up in other words i'm going to assume i am not going to assume that you believe any of this i'm going to start with literally how do we know anything and so then so again i'm having to research right like right. i've got some ideas about how we know stuff but i next thing you know i'm thanks to google i'm in a field called epistemology which is simply a big fancy word for how do you know what you know and really honestly it comes down to four things like this is true of anything. And matter of fact, you could even boil it down to one thing. And that is, we know what we know because we rely on authorities. And an authority is someone or something that you trust to define or describe reality for you. That's it. That's all it is. So right. if I was to say, you know, how do you know that the earth is round? Unless you're an astronaut, it's, you know, you're, you're relying on authority. Somebody snapped a picture and you don't you, look you don't know where that picture was taken you don't even know who took it and yet right. you 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 rely on it you don't even know your own birthday really <laughs> the only reason why you think you do you weren't you were there for it but you don't remember it no. you were you you claim that your birthday is the day that it is cuz some nurse wrote it down on a birth certificate somewhere Yep. Uh, you know, and if you don't even have it you can just make, pick one <laughs> like, sure. and your parents tell you this is the day you were born every year that's right 
And so we are relying on sources of authority that we are willing to trust. Uh, you know, if you think that, let's say, rioting is a problem around the country, it's because you trust a source of authority that's telling you. If you think it's not a problem, it's because you're trusting a different source. You're, I, I'm uh, now that unless you're in one of the cities that are experiencing the the unrest or or, right. or maybe it's stable. I don't know. Right. But we are relying on sources. So we have four basic sources of authority. We got experience, reason, community, and revelation. And so then you just kind of explain each of those. And honestly, look, when it comes to God, there are three options. Like you, like it, it seems overwhelming. It is not. Does God exist? Yes. No, I don't know. Like that's it. Yeah. Then you, and this is all I did in the book, right? Is you just give reasons for and for and against each position. And you trust that kids in an internet age are able to, uh, to kind of comb through the evidence that's available and entrust themselves to the, to the best authorities on the topic, which I think is Jesus. Exactly. And I love what you say there because to many students in youth ministry, the youth pastor is the authority. They're the, they're the pastor. They're the youth. They're the one they see every time across the table at Taco Bell. They're the ones that hang with them. They're the ones that are in community. They're the ones that are there. And so uh, youth workers, you know, to many of your kids, believe it or not, you're the authority that when there's a struggle, there's a problem. They ask you because they believe that you're the authority on how to solve a problem or what does the Bible say about something. And so being the authority uh, uh, hastens the, the idea that, that you and I and all of us that work with teenagers uh, need to be a little more educated ourselves so that we can be more uh, useful in, in teaching apologetics to our students. Well, you're exactly right. And one of the things that just really drives me crazy is after some tragedy, right? Kobe Bryant passed away in the helicopter. Um, there was one recently, uh, I, I'm, I'm drawing a blank on what it was, but it was one of those moments, one of those cultural moments where people say, why, right? Why did this happen? Um, you know, where was God? That sort of thing. Yeah. And I hear so many pastors, this really gets at me. I hear so many pastors say something like, well, you know, people don't want theological answers um, in, in moments like that. And of course they point to Job and how his buddies kind of, you know, they, they were fine as long as they were just sitting there and holding hands. But once they started to speak, then, oh, it just all, you know, became a problem, but they spoke wrongly, first of all. But secondly, if you listen to what people are saying, they're asking for theological answers. They're saying, why did this happen? And if right. Christian pastors are caught flat footed in that moment, then, then what makes us think if we don't have anything to say in moments of tragedy, that we have anything to say when things are fine? Like everybody can talk when things are fine. It's right. when things have fallen apart that Christian people can step in and say, let us tell you about a God who is good despite the circumstances that we presently are experiencing. Right. Ask, ask pastors after 9-11 if people had theological questions. Exactly right. That, and that was a failed moment for the church, for many churches. It's because we've become we've become enamored with the idea that nobody actually want, that that theology is not relevant for those moments or it's unwelcome in those moments. When in fact, I think that that those are the moments where people are saying, "What does Christianity or any faith system have to tell me, or comfort me, or console me, or encourage me in this very moment?" And when we just say, "Well, we don't we can't we don't have anything to say, but we can give you a hug," well, that's cool. Like hugs are helpful, but also. I'd feel a whole lot better if I felt like I had a firm grip on reality right now. 
sure sure and there's and i think there's you have to be a i think you have to be a compassionate apologist right you have to be a compassionate person who delivers these things right Th these instances these stories these facts these all these things with that with a sense of compassion which then brings me to my next question uh trevor is this how can teens use apologetics without being a jerk because here's the problem right a lot of teenagers want to be argumentative yeah it's very clear right if you've ever had a teenager in your home or know a teenager they will argue my kids will argue with me i argue over it doesn't matter you'll bring it up and say i believe terminator is an excellent movie and my 26 year old son says absolutely not that is absolute trash uh, he will he will argue with me over the silliest of things but then again so will i so then how do we then teach kids to take facts information and not be don't hand a kid a power tool and say well just go crazy just do what you want to do how do we use how do we give them the tools and say well don't be a jerk about it yeah it's a great question uh, i think like eugene peterson makes this this uh connection with giving like a, a 16 year old or maybe the, the keys to a car and just, and he doesn't even know, or maybe he hasn't been trained how to drive. And you're just like, Hey, try not to wreck out there. Uh, it would be crazy. So I think that a lot of this, honestly, like apologetics and let's say contending for the faith or, or com commending the faith to others and defending it against kind of uh, naysayers or whatever. Um, uh, I think that it has to be done from an overflow of the other things, hopefully the fruit of the spirit that Christ is, is working in your life. So, uh, so, and this is where I almost think that you're teaching kids how to be an apologist, even when you're not teaching about apologetics necessarily. Sure. It's about, absolutely. It's about, you know, Andy Stanley has this point uh, of uh, like when the relationship, not the argument kind of thing where, like that's that's not in the context of apologetics that's just in the context of of relationships and so this is where i think some of the other things that you're teaching can uh can really kind of bleed over and affect how we respond to and relate to other people now specifically one of the things the term that i continuously put forward to my students is come from a posture of curiosity mm. there has never been a time when I ask somebody, and dude, I've been in conversations with adults, with students from the East Coast to the West Coast, there's never been a time when I come from a posture of curiosity, when I say, hey, what makes you think that? Where they don't feel like, cool, like this dude I can talk to, he's listening. In fact, yeah. I met a dude, oh gosh, what was his name? Uh, I forgot his name now, but he uh, uh, met him out in Wyoming. And he was like, hey, what do you do? And, you know, I'm try I was trying to think through like, okay, you know, you can say you're a pastor, but that shuts things down pretty quick. Um, I was like, I teach religion. And dude, he just went on. He was like, you know what? I've been looking for somebody I can talk to about religion. And we were off to the races. And I just said, and it turned out he had a very bad church experience um, yeah. growing up. And he is hostile toward God and hostile toward faith and so forth. He didn't think Jesus ever existed. And it was just like a really great conversation that opened up tremendous avenues. I'm just like, hey, what makes you think that? And that's the question. If I could give, if you could give your students, anybody who's listening, if you can give your students a question it, when they encounter somebody's perspective, it's simply, how do you know that? Like if somebody makes a claim 
Um, and it could be, it could be something that we all assume that we agree on, or it could be something that, uh, that we don't agree on. It doesn't even matter. Hey, how do you know that? It's like, uh, I think the Bible is wrong. Well, how do you know that? Uh, I think God is, is real. How do you know that? And, right. and, and what we'll find over and over, and that's a curiosity question that invites conversation. And then if you can ask them to engage, not just with curiosity, but with humility, to where there is kind of an open-handed nature to this that says, I recognize my finitude, all right? In other words, I recognize that I don't possess an all-seeing eye, that I don't know, in fact, what it's like to walk in your shoes. Through empathy, I can try, but right. there's, always a dis there's always a gap, right? I'm finite, God's infinite. So because of that distance, I can't presume that I know everything that's going on in your heart or in your head. The other thing is, is that we are fallen. So we're finite and we're fallen. And those are two sides of this coin that, that force me toward humility. Because in my fallenness, I live with this reality distortion field where I am very likely to uh, construe the data in ways that, that are easiest or most agreeable to me. Right. So uh, I, those are two things I would, I would really try to get at is, I mean, again, I had a, I had a fantastic conversation with a 16 year old girl who identified as a lesbian um, who, and no other pastor seemed to be able to kind of get, get through to her, her local youth pastor, uh, you know, had really driven her out. Uh, her parents had kind of shipped her off. And, and I engaged in this fantastic conversation with this girl simply because I, I came from a place of curiosity that said, help me understand what it's like to be you right now. Wow. You know, and did God, she identified as a Christian as well. So I said, did God ever factor in? Like what role did God play in your, in your thinking on this or decision-making on this? Or did the Bible kind of play a role? And she just said, no. And I'm like, okay. Like it just, now that's, so then I'm coming like, that's curious to me as yeah. a Christian person, how are you making decisions about, about big decisions about life and orientation and sexuality and so forth without at least maybe uh, going to God in prayer or seeking counsel through the word. And that opens up more conversation. So I honestly think that, uh, you know, I don't know if you can totally get the argumentativeness, let's say, out of kids because, you know, I, I mean, I would say I, if I didn't think if I didn't think I was right, I would change my position. You know, kids are just a bit more black and white than that. Yes. And so uh, this is part of the risk that we take when we unleash these little guys and girls as ambassadors for Christ, you know, in the world, like with, right. for all the, uh, you know, we, we take the good, the bad and the ugly that comes along with that. But exactly. I do think that we, we can continue to harp on and teach them in our, in, in through apologetics, but also uh, the way that we talk about other people of faith. Uh, and so forth in our teaching and so forth and the way that they see us engage. Uh, and if we use slurs uh, that, that demean other people um, that's not helpful. And they are, li they're likely going to pick up on that and maybe even begin to embody some of that in their own posture toward other people. Right. How we teach it is equally as important as what we're teaching. Agreed. Because if we teach it from an argumentative point of view, Everybody's an outsider. We're all insiders. You have to defend the faith, right? You, you're the last holdout. You're the, you're the ones, you're the watchman on the wall. You're, you're, you're defending the camp. You're, you know, this warrior mentality. All, once again, it, I understand it. But if we're creating these little Pharisees, if you will, yeah. that's, not, that's not the position that Jesus is asking us to take. He's asking us to take, like you said, Let's be curious. Let's be humble. Let's understand our own mortality and the fact that we don't have 
all knowledge the way God has all knowledge. We're trying to work through our things, working out our salvation with fear and trembling, right? So let's be gentle. Let's be fellow human beings and, and, and work on this together with a certain set of principles going in saying, I believe these things because I've ta been taught that the Bible is true because Jesus lived because that's what I understand it. How do you understand it? That's right. Uh, I think it was a guy named Randy Newman years ago who wrote a book. I think he worked with uh, Campus Crusade maybe, but he wrote a book called Questioning Evangelism, where uh -huh. you can you can actually make some great inroads with people by opening up and saying, hey, what do you think about that? That's a great way to do it. In fact, my son is learning about world religions in his uh, class at school right now. And he, and he said, hey, dad, I'm curious, you know, about um, you know, what this other, what this one, what these couple of guys, his pals, you know, what they think about religion. He said, I don't know if they're Christians, but I didn't ask. And I'm counseling him to do this exact same thing of saying, son, all you got to do is say, Hey, I was wondering what, you know, what do you think about God? <laughs> nobody, nobody br bristles at that question. You know, right. the other thing I'll tell you is Dallas Willard. Uh, uh, he wrote a book, um, yep. called the, the allure of gentleness. Oh, oh. what a great title. He yeah. contends in that book that, uh, just what you said is that we're not just trying to share the message of Jesus. We are trying to share the message of Jesus in the way of Jesus so that we actually undercut our, our own message, uh, our own faith for that matter. If we push the truths of Jesus in ways that are unlike Jesus. And I just think, and that title is just something that, st that stands out to me, the allure of gentleness. Yeah. And that's because hey, in, a, in a really fractured society where everybody's kind of hostile and angry and, and, and bitter about things, there's something winsome and compelling about uh, a message that says, you want, you want to know where real life is found? It's found in the way of Jesus. And I can, I can help introduce you to that way and walk with you on it. Um, that's compelling for people. It is. It absolutely is. And youth workers, you know, pay attention to those things, to pay attention to your tone of voice, pay attention to your mannerisms, pay attention to how you present truth, right? How you present these things to your students, because what is it uh, that, uh, you know, John Maxwell said, right? People, uh, people don't care how much you know until they know how much you care, right? It's all about caring it's not just about knowledge knowledge in that case does puff up but love edifies well that's right and both. and there's a concept all right and i think this this is another one of those things where when i stumbled into this bit of kind of this information it changed the game for me okay not every student is at the place to receive apologetic arguments uh and, and here's the thing all right so the 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 information is called the five thresholds of faith it was published by InterVarsity Fellowship uh, they, through a couple of campus college, college campus evangelists. And they learned, they kind of, they themselves kind of stumbled into this, this framework. And it begins with trusting a Christian. So, by the way, seeking truth or, you know, these apologetic arguments are step four or threshold number four. So if these other things aren't in place, then you're, a, you're, you can have, you can deploy the very best arguments and you're going to, you're not going to get anywhere. This is, right. you know, this is, I told my students like you should ask me why everybody I meet doesn't become a Christian. In other words, Hey, pastor guy, if your, if your arguments are so good, about the existence of God and the truth of scripture and so forth, then why doesn't everybody you know become a Christian? 
And it's because they are at different points in the five thresholds of faith sequence. Number one is that they, you got to trust a Christian. So if, so that's the first step, right? If a person doesn't trust a Christian person, then they're always going to dismiss anything that Christians say. So they've got to be in a real person-to-person relationship with a Christian that earns their trust. This is how it worked for me. Young Life did this exact thing for me. They built a bridge of trust. Well, then the second threshold is curiosity about differences. And this is where they recognize differences between the Christian person and themselves. And it's not just differences that are odd. Like even as a non-Christian kid, I was like, hey, Christians, they kind of gather around the flagpole. That's weird, but whatever. Like this has to be somehow or another even though somebody kind of said something off-putting to them, they didn't retaliate in a way that maybe I thought they would. Hey, even though their parents kind of put the kibosh on them and they couldn't, you know, they, they couldn't go out as late as they wanted, they didn't disrespect their parents as a result. Like there's got to be, there's distinctives that make us Christian people that bring us, that have us uh, shine light for, for Jesus. That's recognizable. The kicker is, is that people aren't always calling attention to it. They're, they might recognize it, but they're not no but they're not calling attention to it right sometimes they will sometimes they'll say and this is the classic hey what makes you so different you know well that's that'd be great if somebody would ask but yeah. they don't always ask sometimes they just simply note it they they make a mental note well yeah. the, the third threshold assuming that they trust a christian and they are curious about the differences between your kind of approaches to life is that they have to be open to change and this to me is the threshold where most of these situations fall down is Kids, they see the difference, but they're not quite ready to sacrifice, you know, popularity, or they're not quite ready to sacrifice freedom, or they're not, they're not quite ready to sacrifice, whatever. They're just not open to change. But right. once a kid kind of gets to that place where they're like, you know what, uh, the status quo isn't working for me anymore. I need something different, something real, something yeah. true, something good in my life. That is finally the place that opens the way to threshold number four, which is seeking truth. And that is the time and that is the place where they are open to uh, participate with apologetics and questions and conversations like we're talking about. And then the fifth threshold is simply crossing that line of, of faith. And different people are at different spots in that. And that's why you can deploy your best arguments and it falls on deaf ears because they might right. not be at the, at, at, one, at the proper place. Right. And, and it's really about teaching kids because everything you said there is just straight money. Youth workers, I hope you're taking notes. I hope you go back and listen to this and write this stuff down. But the deal is it, you're playing a very long game. You're, this is not you, you, winning in the short term, right? May not last. You may pray with somebody. You may get them to come to church. You may, but it may fall apart later if your lifestyle, if uh, other things are not connecting. You may, you may pray with somebody and it never, you know, the story of the, the soils, right? It, we don't know, but, but really you're, you're playing a very long game and saying, look, I'm going to live out my faith. I'm going to be curious. I'm going to be humble. I'm going to be gentle. And when the opportunity arrives, I will have listened to what my youth pastor has taught me both factually and from a behavioral standpoint, that this, did you capture the moment when that time is right for the friends that are around me? They're not all on the same place. So I don't have to argue them into G. I've always heard, said too that, that, and I heard it from somebody else, if somebody can argue you into Jesus, somebody can argue you out of Jesus. That's right. So, so let's not, it's not just about the argument. It's about the relationship that you have with your friends, right? Yes. That's exactly right. And I was talking with a, with a uh, 
campus ministry evangelist in Wisconsin recently uh, about some strategies for sharing faith in on a college campus with very very intelligent people who really dismiss everything he says uh, out of hand. Like they have no no time, no patience for what he's talking about. And what's the what what advice do you give to somebody in that situation? Well, it has to be you got to go back and build relationships of trust where all where. Uh, they might disagree with what you believe or with what you're saying, but they can't dismiss you as, as, not, as not being uh, authentic and genuine about it. So in right. other words, we can agree to disagree about the truth of reality and, what, and what, whether God's there and whether, whether Jesus embodies him fully or not. But what I can't do is dismiss your claims by saying you have vested interests of money, sex, and power or something else and therefore dismiss you and your message. Right. You got to build the right, build the, earn the, earn the right to be heard, build the bridges of trust. And that's when all of everything else follows suit from there. Curiosity, openness to change, discussions about truth, and eventually praying with somebody to enter the kingdom of God. And um, that's where I think, that's where I think we've got to be in a post-Christian culture. Exactly. I totally agree. Now let's go ahead and talk real quick as we begin to close our time together. Let's talk about resources. I know youth workers listening are saying, okay, I get it. There's a whole process here, but where do I start? Is there, do I start with curriculum? Are there videos, best books that I should read, right? So there's stuff that I should read as a, as a pastor, right? As a, as a youth pastor, something I should read for me, right? Yeah. Then there's stuff that I need to say, okay, what then is the stuff that I need to let dribble down and communicate this to my students? And this is the point, by the way, Trevor, when you need to actually hold up your book and say, look, I wrote a book <laughs> called Considering Christianity, which I will put number one on the list of resources youth workers you should have. That will be a link down in the show notes for that and for the other books that we've talked about. But I want you to, Trevor, share some resources that you think sure. that, a, uh, that a youth worker should have to, to start with, whether that's a youth curriculum, whether that's writing your own, whether that's taking your book and dicing it up by chapter. However you choose, tell the youth workers how they can uh, begin to have these resources um, that will be good for them and their students. Well, for, I appreciate you giving the plug for the book. It's called Considering Christianity, How to Believe in a Secular Age. This is content that I've taught over the course of three years with over 200 high school students. It's been refined by all of the engagement back and forth with them. Um, you know, if I, uh, there's, there's probably, you could actually say there's 200 authors to this because um, I would kind of trot out some, some, uh, some arguments or some evidence or some whatever. And I would always invite feedback. I would always invite pushback. What, what about this doesn't land with you? What about this doesn't resonate with you? And so every day that I, that I teach through this material, a whiteboard was full of illustrations, examples, and so forth. In fact, one of the, one of the best um, illustrations of the moral argument, which is the idea that we all have a, a, an, innate, an, an innate sense of morality, we know that some things are wrong for everyone, no matter how people think or feel about them. One of the best illustrations of that case came when a student of mine shared the story of her neighbor, once upon a time, who lived in an apartment next door to her uh, in Montana. This man's name was Nathaniel Bar Jonah. This, this, is, this is the gold that you never get until you actually talk with real people about these, these ideas. Yeah. I mentioned the moral argument, and she said, I have to... I, 
uh, I have to tell you about Nathaniel Barjona. I said, who's this guy? Next thing you know, we pulled him up on Wikipedia. Everything this girl said checked out. He was like a, a, a serial killer. Oh and, and every person in the class was like, oh, what? And that's the thing is that is a great example. There's nobody who thinks Nathaniel Barjona is a good guy. Like everybody like instinctively, like viscerally is repulsed at that man and his actions. That's a great example of the moral argument. Anyhow, one, just one of the examples in the book uh, for, <laughs> for, for pastors, right? For adults working with young people. Uh, I, I personally, look, I don't think you can do any better than the reason for God uh, and making sense of God that you got your copy. Look, yep, uh, right here. Book, this book right here was unbelievable. And what I love about Keller is he's got a, he's a pastor, man. He's got a pastor's heart. And I know he's writing some things about social justice right now that some people don't love and don't agree with, you know, uh, don't let that distract you from the arguments that are leveraged in this book right here. Now this turned out, he wrote this one first, but it turned out to be a prequel, uh, a sequel because the more he talked with people, millennials, Gen Z, whatever, he began to, he, he recognized that this book kind of made some assumptions uh, about God or about morality or about virtue that you can't quite make in today's secular age. So he went back and he wrote this book right here where he even said, hey, look, does God even make sense? Like, does the topic of God, the concept of God, like, haven't we, hasn't that kind of fallen out of fashion? Do we even need God anymore? So before he makes the case for kind of God and Christian faith, he had to kind of go back and say, hold up now, don't, don't let us get so smart that we allow God and God's existence to slip off the, uh, slip off the, uh, the radar or off the horizon. Those are, those are a couple of places I would start. So you got my book, you got Keller's book, um, I wouldn't, I wouldn't sleep on showing videos either, frankly. Yeah. I think that, that you, you, you basically, if I'm contending for the faith, I want to start with, let's say, the story of Jesus. Uh, I think there's an app right now. Um, I, I don't have any affiliation with them, but it's called The Chosen, mm -hmm. um, where I understand it's a pretty good portrayal. I've seen one episode. I actually need to dig in a little bit more, but I'm always looking for uh, portrayals of Jesus that humanize him. So I'm very with I'm very much with Dallas Willard, who says that part of the problem in in considering Jesus is that we've basically uh, gone ahead and given him a halo, and he's mm. walking around all you know with like the Shekinah glory around him. When in fact that that's part of iconography and such. Right. But in reality, he was a he was a, a, a you know a handyman. He was a carpenter, a tecton in the yep. Greek, which has a bunch of different kind of ways that you can, you can uh, bend that. Uh, but he attracted dudes. Uh, he attracted ladies. He, uh, you know, there was something about him, his character, his mission, his message, his, his, just his presence that, um, that was incredibly attractive to basically create a movement, whether you agree with his divinity or not, but whether you're a Christian or not, you, it is very difficult to dismiss uh, the what manner of man must he have been to yeah. have created a, a, a following such that lives on today and has crossed the globe in his name. Like again, secular, religious, or otherwise you got to, I think you start there and you acknowledge that. And then you can say, okay, what might it mean to think of Jesus as not just a prophet or a teacher or a healer, but as who he claimed to be in terms of Messiah, in terms of Lord, what yeah. might that be? And what might stand in the way of that? So you, you really look at that story of Jesus. And I think you can do that very well through film. 
through, um, you know, the Bible uh, miniseries. I would be showing those videos, uh, you know, regularly um, because I think that we're in kind of a video driven uh, medium, right? And even right. if you can kind of cut and slice some of those things, make them shorter, even show, show, uh, show 10 minutes, stop and, uh, you know, and then have a conversation about it. Like this doesn't have to be super complicated. Um, exactly. And then I think that really you, I mean, go back and look at the case for Christ. I found the case for Christ movie. I think a lot of Christian movies are done poorly. Right. And that's for various reasons, low budget. Right. uh, You know, they don't have the, the, whatever the production money to make it unbelievable or whatever, like like what we've become used to in other Hollywood, but the case for Christ movie was solid, man. It was. And and I I reviewed that. I reviewed that by the way, right here on the channel. I'll put a link to that down in the description below. That's right. I thought they did a terrific job with that and it really humanizes Lee Strobel's, you know, story. Um, and, and, and so I, I really do think that, uh, you know, that going with going through the case for Christ or look, it might be that the primer that your middle school students need, again, evidential apologetics is a good deal. More than a carpenter is like a hundred pages, very easy to read. Um, again, it might be right where your kids are at. That's the thing is that they're not all dealing with, you know, critical theory and Friedrich Nietzsche and, uh, you know, Karl Marx and opium of the masses and, and whatever else. Like that might not be where they're at. Now I wouldn't now look with the democratization of information. Some of your high school kids are there. No doubt. Like they watch YouTube. Uh, in fact, the, the material that came from my book was dealing, was talking to uh, upperclassmen, high school kids about this very issue. So I wouldn't, yeah. I, and again, my seventh grader is asking questions like this. So part of me says, Hey, kind of boil it down, not water it down, but make it simple. The other part of me says, look, like they've got questions. And I would say, this is, I tell you what, if I was in their seat, this is exactly what I would do. I would read one of these resources and I would personalize it or contextualize it to my kids, my context, yep. take what you need, take what they're, take what, you know, what kind of provokes you and stands out to you, teach it and then put, and then invite their feedback. And you say, what is it? Is there anything I've said that, that, and, or you could even tell them, I would say, tell them ahead of time, Hey, I'm going to be teaching this material. And while I'm telling you these things, while I'm teaching you, I invite you to write down things that come across your mind, questions that you think about and just, and give them an index card ahead of time, have them write down the question and ask them to submit it and say, I'm going to do my very best to come back and circle around and answer some of these questions in the future. And what I would tell you then is um, if you, if you get a question that you don't know, email me, I'll be happy to jump in. If you want somebody to come in and talk on a zoom, I'll be happy to come in and jump on a zoom and really talk through some of these issues because your students, if you can't answer them, that's not, that, that's neither here nor there. Your students deserve to have intelligible, um, reasonable, thoughtful answers about their deepest questions. Or you can spend all the money in the world and all the hours in the world and your gaga pit and uh, the coolest curriculum and the best moving lights and a bunch of yeah. money on a band. Yeah. And uh, again, like cra- they won't develop crazy love for Jesus like Francis Chan wants them to get if they can't at the end of the day believe in Jesus. Right. And you, so, so many good points there. So many good points. But I, I and I would, I, I would say that there is no greater resource than scripture itself, right? Your knowledge of scripture, right? Then the, that's your baseline, right? That's foundational. Uh, but also asking your own questions, right? Why do I believe? Make your own list of questions. Why do I believe in the resurrection? Why do I believe that Jesus is the only way to, to heaven, to God? Why do I believe 
uh, that the Bible is true, right? The more study you do for yourself, the more you begin to ask the questions of yourself, the more answers you get. And then these other resources that you, that th these books, whether it's Reason for God, any of those, um, then become supplemental, right? You borrow from those and say, let's talk, let's take that page out of your book, that page out of Reason for God, and let's show this video clip. And then I think, I don't know if there's any one curriculum or anything that I would point to that say, that's what you ought to teach. That's it. I think the best resource is your own personal study, your own prayer time, your, your own journey in the mix of all that, how you came to faith yourself is, is part of the, it's not just the, the dissemination of facts or knowledge, but it's how did you discover Jesus? And the more, and then take that and, and, and supplement it with these other things, uh, then go ahead and uh, and teach what you know, teach what you've discovered. No, I think you're on. You're you're exactly on the right track. One of the most compelling books for me in the topic. John Stott wrote a book <laughs> called "Why I Am a, Why I Am a Christian," and that honestly, look, if you if you did a a message series over the next few weeks without even without cool graphics, with no bumper video, <laughs> with nothing like whatever, if you did a series for three weeks called "Why I Am a Christian," that's compelling, honestly. Yeah. Um, uh, when, because I, I, you know, as I'm talking with, with youth pastors, I'm, I'm saying oftentimes, like they're sharing with me, like their sermons are kind of boring, but, but, but what they're sharing to me about what God's doing in their life. Oh man. Like, I'm like, you got to share that with your students. Like often, like, sure. I'm, I'm for curriculum, right? I use curriculum. I love yeah. curriculum as yep. a jumping off point, as a starting point, whatever. But there are times when you've got to, when you got to listen to the spirit and say, what is God doing? How is God showing up in my heart? And in my life, what has God done in my life? Because that's compelling your personal uh, journey and those stories like that. Kids want to know that they want to hear that they click, yeah. they, they grab, they grab, uh, they grip onto that. And so a lot of times I think we might be shortchanging our own, our own, uh, what we as, as pastors who have been brought in, let's say, or hired by the, the by the church that we serve at, we might be shortchanging our students by outsourcing too much, you know, to curriculum. And we could, uh, you know, with just 30 minutes or an hour of thought to say, why am I a Christian? Okay. And you just begin to write those things down and see where the connections take you. And then you might have a three-part series, you know, uh, yeah. where you've invited some feedback. I will say, don't wait till the end to say, hey, what questions do you have? I think it's very, very powerful to, to lead them up front and say, here's, here's an index card, here's a pen. As I'm, tell, as I'm sharing, I want you to think, you know, right, as, as, as the thought comes to your mind, you go ahead and write it down. Um, because if you wait, then they're going to be like, it's like when you wait until Christmas to write down your Christmas list. Yeah. Like, what do you want for Christmas? And you're like, I have no idea. Like, you know, back in July, I had about four things I thought of, but I can't, it's November and I can't tell you one of them. So that's what I would say. I would say, go ahead and prime them by getting uh, a card and a pen in their hand and they'll, they'll give you some questions. Yes, and, they will. Um, and then it's up to you to maybe do some due diligence, pastoral research, you know, um, and ask around. If you don't know, keep asking. Keep asking. That's a great way to end this. Keep asking questions. Trevor, tell everybody uh, where they can get a hold of you, how they can get a hold of your book, uh, how they can connect with you, all those kind of good things. Uh, share with them. Yeah, sure. So uh, I blog regularly on betteryouthministry.com. And that's probably the best way to, to check it out. I'm semi-active on social media at Better Youth Men, M-I-N, Better Youth Men. 
Um, and the book, uh, I think I've got like nine books now. This is one of them. Uh, they're all on amazon.com. And uh, every now and again, somebody will email me like, hey, can I get a hold of your book? Honestly, my wife would kill me if I kept all those in the garage. So I don't have any. I don't have any. You got to go to amazon.com. If you put my name, Trevor Hamaker, H-A-M-A-K-E-R, in the search bar, it'll take you to whatever you need. That's it. That's it. All those links, I'll put links all down in the show notes and in the description here on YouTube. Uh, but thank you, Trevor, so much for coming on, talking about apologetics, talking about the process. And uh, I hope youth workers, you were taking notes. If not, go back and listen again, go back and watch again, take notes, process, and uh, come up with your own three weeks, four weeks, one night, whatever you come up with, and teach your kids about why um, Jesus uh, is the reason uh, to believe. And so Trevor, thanks for being here. Thanks for having me. I don't know about you, but interviews like this fire me up. These types of conversations just light a fire in me. And I hope it's lit a fire in you today to talk with your kids about apologetics and about what it means to defend the faith and, and ask questions and be curious and be humble and all of those things. And so I want to encourage you uh, today by closing out with this uh, little paragraph from The Reason for God by Timothy Keller. And it says this in Matthew 28, uh, it says, when they saw him, they worshiped him, but some doubted. That's verse 17. And it says, this is a remarkable admission. Here is the author of an early Christian document telling us that some of the founders of Christianity couldn't believe the miracle of the resurrection. And even when they were looking straight at him with their eyes and touching him with their hands, there is no reason for this to be in the account unless it really happened. The passage shows us several things. It is a warning not to think that we modern scientific people have to struggle with the idea of the miraculous while ancient, more primitive people did not. The apostles like, responded like any other group of modern people. Some believed their eyes and some didn't. It is also an encouragement to patience. All the apostles ended up as great leaders in the church, but some had a lot more trouble believing than others. And maybe that's some of your kids. Well, keep hanging with them, right? Talk to them about apologetics. Ask them questions. Be curious about their faith and say, what do you think about this? Or what do you think about this part of the lesson? Or what do you think about Jesus coming? And, you know, whatever the questions may be, be curious about their beliefs and ask them, why do you believe that? And then get into a discussion with them and really find out where they're coming from so that you can be able to minister to them in even greater ways. So thank you so much today for joining me for the Youth Ministry Motion podcast. I hope that you enjoyed it. If you're a brand new listener, thank you for joining me. If you're a regular, as always, I appreciate uh, you loaning me your ears for a little while. If you have enjoyed what you've heard, would you take just a moment and go over uh, to iTunes and leave us some stars and leave some reviews? And that way, this podcast can be found by other youth workers just like yourself. Uh, who are looking for resources like this uh, to help them grow in their walk with God and also to help grow in their ministry. And that's it for now, everybody. We'll catch you guys in the next episode. You've been listening to the Youth Ministry in Motion podcast with Paul Turner. Visit thediscipleproject.net to find out more about how you can join the ministry-minded coaching group for bi-monthly coaching sessions that will help you build a successful youth ministry. 